1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today, we're going to talk about Black History Month and about the first year of President Barack Obama's uh, term in office. We have two guests with us in the studio. Audrey T. McCluskey is the director of the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center on the IU campus. She's uh, also a faculty member in the Department of African-American and African Diaspora Studies. And she's an author who's written uh, several books including recently uh, Richard Pryor, The Life and Legacy Mm -hmm. of a Crazy Black Man and The Devil You Dance With, Film Culture in the New South Africa. Also with us today, David Hummins, who's the uh, chair of the Bloomington Commission on the Status of Black Males. David also is co-chair of the IU Bloomington Faculty and Staff Council and director of Community and Student Engagement, Office of Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877 877 285-9348 and you can join the discussion at our website, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Audrey, David, welcome back. Both of you have been mm-hmm. here before. Thank you. No, thank glad, you. Glad to, mm-hmm. glad to have you back. It's uh, it's February. It's Black History Month. I think we all often talk about how it's uh, it's unfortunate that we have, a, have to have a Black History Month sometimes because uh, it's just part of our American history. Audrey, could you sort of address the, uh, the issue of having a month set aside to, to celebrate black history?
2: Well, the question for me is whether or not it has the same purpose as it had in the beginning when Carter G. Woodson in 1926 – decided that we needed to have uh, a Black History Week then. It was called Negro History Week. And the purpose at that point was to correct some of the misrepresentations of African Americans and the neglect of African Americans in history books and the way in which we were perceived in society, almost like a conspiracy of silence about the contributions, the richness of the black uh, culture. And so this is the purpose originally – was to also inspire African-Americans to believe in themselves and not to accept the burden of inferiority, which the larger culture was trying to uh, impose upon them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But the question to me today is whether or not it serves the same purpose, and perhaps we can get into that later sure. on. Sure.
1: Absolutely. David, uh, do you think it serves that purpose?
3: Um, you know, practically speaking, let, let, let me go back a little bit. <clears throat> I grew up in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, in the, in the Butler-Targeted area. and. Um, So I went to public schools at a time. When you walked to school, you came home for lunch and you walked back. And all through K through 8 and really going through high school, we never really studied anything to do with black history. We got our black history from our family because we lived in quasi-segregated neighborhoods. We got it from the black YMCAs. We got it from the black church. We got it from other organizations. But we really didn't get black history in school. We never studied, for example, Japanese internment camps. I didn't know anything about those until I went to college. And And so what I'm trying to say is that I think Black History Month, you know, we're talking about... To a certain extent, the viability of it, but whether the purpose has changed or not, there's still a major educational component to Black History Month. There are a lot of people in this country that need to to learn about the contributions of of Black people and sla- and the whole notion of slavery in American history. It's 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 intrinsically weaved right in right in our history. And I think that from an information point of view and an education point of view, and as Audrey has said, trying to uh, uh, re, uh, reorient misperceptions. I think it is very important. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Audrey, do you think that uh, – how far do you think we've come since that first you know, Negro History Week, as you called it? Um, how far have we come in reestablishing a purpose for Black History Month?
2: It's been a long and winding road. (laughs) And I think that uh, some would say we don't need one now because of who's in the White House. But I would uh, beg to differ, not in the sense that I think that it should – automatically solve our problems. But I, my question is still, again, about the, what's the purpose of the week. In 1926, even in 1966, when David and I were, were, were growing up, and now we're in 2010, and what I am concerned about uh, is the continuation of the idea that uh, perhaps blacks are not represented well in history. Certainly, we are not represented well in history, but some people would argue that history is not taught very well to anyone about, about any particular group. But I'm more concerned about black history as being a point in time where we can reflect not so much on what our history has been, but where we are going. Mm-hmm. And so today, uh, I'm thinking about ideas of structural inequality, uh, Whether or not we have jobs, whether or not we have good schools, what are the kinds of impediments to black excellence? And those are the questions that I think we have inefficiently and insufficiently addressed in terms of black history and the presence of blacks in this society.
1: Mm -hmm. So how how would you suggest we go about addressing some of those?
2: Well— I think that for some people, Black History Month is about a celebration, what I would call a parade of blackness, mm-hmm. uh, black extravaganza, black uh, uh, recitals, uh, all the kinds of rich uh, musical culture that we have, and and that and artistic culture. That is very much a part of it, and I certainly want to, to emphasize how important that is. But we also need to pay attention to what's happening in our inner cities. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the unemployment rate, we, th- we hear constantly that there's a 10% unemployment rate. Well, it's according to which communities you're talking about. Uh, In some parts of the black community, it's 30%. So three times what the national average is. But that's not being addressed. And so if Black History Month has any purpose and if it does not deal with the, the real problems and concerns that are going on in so many pockets of, of black America, then I think this is when we need to think about kind of a, a remake of, of Black mm-hmm. History Month. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Our phone numbers eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, 855-0811, 877-285-9348. And you can join us at our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition.
0: Um, if you don't mind, Audrey, I'd like to just take a little step backwards and ask a real 101 question. Um, Could you tell us about the mission of the Neil Marshall
2: Black Culture Center here on campus? Oh, proudly. And by the way, this is a time for me to plug (laughs) one of the events that we are doing. We are actually celebrating, uh, as a part of of Black History Month, uh, the 29th anniversary of the Black Knowledge Bowl. And the Black Knowledge Bowl is just an opportunity for undergraduates at IU to actually come together in a Jeopardy-like team format to be quizzed on questions related to black uh, culture, history. And it's a real fun, uh, fun event, but it's something also that the community should, could be involved in. But the Neomartia Black uh, Culture Center had its origin uh, almost 40 years ago. In fact, we celebrated the 40th anniversary just this year. And it, like Black History Month, has evolved Uh, We have a wonderful uh, facility on campus. Uh, Mm -hmm. Black student population has risen, but it also has declined, and David can talk more about that. So we find ourselves uh, highly visible on campus, but we don't see ourselves as totally empowered. And so what the black, uh, the Marshall Black Culture Center tries to do is to always put that face of, of black progress and black aspirations and try to do all that we can to ensure that black students who come here realize the fullness of their education at Indiana University. But we also want to open up uh, black culture, the black experience to the rest of the community, particularly IU community. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, David, I want to follow up on that and just ask about uh, enrollment of uh, black students on campus. I know that M- Michael McRobbie has made diversity one of his major issues and the office you work in uh, is working on that issue mm-hmm. as well. How, how are things going?
3: Well, as you know, <clears throat> back in 2006 toward the end of uh, uh, Adam Herbert's presidency at Indiana University, there was a lot of pressure brought to bear for the Board of Trustees and and the President to put mandates into the each of the IU campus charters and mission statements, basically committing to double, mm-hmm. the, double the minority enrollment at, at Indiana University by 2013-2014. That is a, a mammoth project because of the fact that in the state of Indiana, we you know we're talking about blacks, Latinos, just a lot of underrepresented groups, but the reality of of it is in Indiana, we have to cre- create a larger pool of high school graduates who are who are who are prepared to come to a place like Indiana University. So the Office of the Vice President of uh, uh, Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs, along with other entities at IU, have really launched a lot of pre-collegiate uh, uh, programs and projects, to, you know, which are very long-term, and Audrey's involved in some of those too, you know, to try to create a larger pool. You know, we have we have anything from first-generation co- uh, college students to the Hudson Hollands program, which is for minority scholars. We have science programs. We have, you know, we just have a plethora of programs, and we're proud of those. And then Indiana University is also launching pre-collegiate initi- initiatives in general all over the state, because as you know, uh, the percentage of high school graduates that goes to college is getting better. But in the past, it really wasn't that good, probably because of the fact that there were jobs, you know, you know, back in the past. And so we're working very hard to to create those pools for, for you know, high school graduates in, in the state of Indiana. But that's a K-12 initiative. That takes time. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I know a young woman, a very bright young woman, who's one of the Hudson Holland scholars. And I'd like for you to explain a little more about that program. Who are the kids that get into that program? And what are the experiences that they have?
3: well uh, and, then, and let me let me try to do this and, and Audrey can help me with this the hudson Highlander uh, basically uh, is a group of minority scholars um they're black they're latino they're uh, you know different uh different uh minorities and ethnicities uh they um they are Students who really come to Indiana University who are prepared, who have relatively high SAT scores, have uh, high GPAs in high school, and are really the students that can can, uh, perform. And they're given scholarships, uh, you know, scholarships. So these are things that you don't have to pay back. And they have nurturing programs. They have uh, some international experiences. Uh, You know, they do things basically to, basically what we're trying to do is nurture the best and the brightest. Mm
1: -hmm. And roughly how many students are in that program?
3: Do I don't know. Do you know?
2: No, I don't have a number. Right.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But there are quite a few, and it's growing. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Again, and I, I
2: would just add that yeah, it sure. was the, the program was named for two exalted scholars and administrators, uh, black administrators at uh, Indiana University, James Holland, who was a, who's a biologist, or was a biologist, and uh, Dr. Hudson, Dr. Mm-hmm. Herman Hudson. So the Hudson Holland Scholars. It used to be called the MAPS program, but mm-hmm. it's named in honor of those two.
3: Yeah. Right. Okay. Very. Brilliant. And it has a strong. Uh, Science component to it now. It didn't start out that way, but but then in in honor of Dr. James Holland, they started a, a, a real a, you know science, technology, engineering, math type deal.
1: Yeah, I know my mm-hmm. young friend is a I think mm-hmm. a, close to a 4.0, and she's going to be a physician, so uh, mm-hmm. she's taking all those science courses. So. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it'll be, be interesting. <laughs> uh, okay, so back back to uh, you know Black History Month as a as a topic. Um, when you you know, when you think about what's being taught in the schools, I mean, are you familiar enough with the with the curriculum to know how close we are to achieving some of the goals that were set up in the beginning? Audrey, do you?
2: I still think there is insufficient uh, from what I've seen with my niece in in high school now. Uh, but I would make that charge just in terms, and I think uh, historians would talk more about this, in terms of just the depth of the historical experience of 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 the wide multicultural America, Howard Zinn just died uh, recently, and of course he did the the famous People's History of America, and you you see a real gap in terms of the depth. You may you may see, for example, the Civil Rights Movement. There may be a paragraph or something on the Civil Rights Movement, but it doesn't get into the depth, uh, you see a lot about Martin Luther King. You see more about Mar- uh, Rosa Parks, but Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, you, don't, you don't see the depth of of uh, the black experience or the multicultural experience. And I, I, so I would not just single out African-Americans in terms of not being adequately represented in history, but I think we need to do a better job of, of talking about the multicultural nature of our American society. Mm-hmm. I've heard some people
0: say that as uh, the younger generation, um, races interact much more freely than ever before and there's more intermarriage than than ever before in our culture and that these problems are going to take care of themselves. What's your response to that?
2: Unfortunately, I don't think so. Problems don't take care of themselves, as you know. I mean, if you have a cold or something and you just say, well, it's going to go away, you know, it could turn into pneumonia. (laughs) (laughs) So I wouldn't I wouldn't put my trust in that. I think that that's an excuse, you know, for inaction. I think, obviously, uh, the ones who are better off are going to fare better. But when we talk about the conditions in the inner city now, uh, we're talking about real dire conditions. We're talking about schools that uh, don't have flushing toilets. You know, we're talking about real serious kinds of inequities in our cities and among our youth. So uh, that romantic notion, I think, is out there. And certainly, we want to encourage people to do well, but we can't think that by any means that these problems are going to take care of themselves. They just don't. They and, just get worse.
3: And more importantly, we, we still have uh, significant disparities with people of color, no matter how prosperous we get. Uh, skin color or whatever, whether you're black or whether you you know can, uh, identify as, as multicultural or whatever, or biracial skin color is still a very prominent elephant in the room in our society, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. We have our first phone call today and uh, it's coming from Carol. Carol?
0: Hi. Um I am. I was interested in what you were saying about the Hudson Holland, Holland program, and I know about Ms. McNair Scholars and so forth. But um, what is IU doing to recruit and retain talented minority faculty? And could you speak to the importance of this in in the relationship of faculty to recruiting and retaining students?
3: Well. I, I know that the provost or the, or the chief executive officer of, let's, let's say, the Bloomington campus is very concerned about that. The reality of it is this sort of translates down to the deans and the chairpersons, the people that make these kind of decisions. And so you could argue that pressure needs to be put on these people. But but, but, but I guess that, you know, the administration and, and various affinity groups associated with, with people of color have to continue to impress upon the university the need to recruit these kind of people. There is something called the Strategic Hiring Program or Initiative at IU where actually money is available to, uh, for departments to, to take advantage of to hire promising minority faculty. And that does happen. But that in itself is not the solution. The reality of it is that the deans and the chairpersons and the leadership of the university and these various affinity groups really have to keep putting the pressure, you know, on, on people to do that. We've we, we tried in the past to develop pools of uh, of uh, minority applicants in various disciplines so that they would be, uh, you know, so at least they could be considered. I think we're getting better at this. There are some departments in Indiana University that are pretty good in hiring at hiring qualified minority faculty. There are others that don't do quite as good a job. But I do know that President McRobbie, I think, is really dedicated to uh, uh, assuring that uh, we do uh, enhance the pools available to recruit uh, minority faculty.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have any? Do you know of any statistics uh, about how well we're doing? I mean, is...
3: I've lost track of those statistics lately. I think mm-hmm. one of the, the question I think one of the questions you're asking is: Is it is 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 are the sheer numbers increasing? Right. Are we showing progress? Yeah, yeah, I know that we get more, but we also get turnover. People Mm. come to Indiana University, they get experience, they achieve a certain level of notoriety, and they leave. So the question is, are we replenishing and increasing? I think that we're increasing, but I don't think we're really increasing at a rapid rate at this mm. point. Yeah, I
1: think mm. Carol asked about uh, attracting and retaining. retaining.
2: Right. Mm. And I'm, I'm concerned with this economic emergency that we are facing now, whether or not there's going to be staying power with the original notion of diversity and having a diverse campus. I hope this is not used as an excuse to fall back and to lose some of the momentum that we were able to gain. So that's what I'm going to be watching for very closely to see just how true we stay to the original mission given the economic emergencies that, that the university is now facing. Yeah, a
1: lot of things seem like a you know, high priority when things are going fairly well. When they're going so and then, well, yes. Yeah, and, then and then
2: you can <laughs> see where the real heart of the university right. is when in situations such as this. So mm-hmm. I'll be watching that. Yeah, and hard. I hope others will too. Right
1: okay mm-hmm. 855-0811 is our local phone number if you're outside of Bloomington call us at eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and our website w f i u dot org slash noon edition David, you talked about walking to and from school and and how it was you know until you really were you know, in college that you knew about certain Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. like the internment of Japanese uh, people Mm -hmm. during the war. Um, What, you know, what was your experience as in terms of history when you were growing up? Can you remember things that you were taught in school in history that when you uh, actually became a little older, a little wiser. You said, wow, I can't believe I was, those were things that I was learning.
3: We learned history from, from K until I, until I graduated from high school and went on. It was European history. I uh-huh. mean, um, you uh-huh. know, we studied the same thing that a lot of people in this room studied. And, and that was our view of history. We got our black history because our parents went to de facto schools, you know, all black schools. My parents came up in, in schools in the 20s when the Klan was run, was heavy in Indiana and then you had the Depression in the 30s. Uh, and, and all that, and so, the, although my parents achieved, uh, they always let us know of the realities, yet let us know what we could do. And so, where did we get our? So we learned these things. And I, I remember days going to hotels that said vacancy, and we couldn't stay. I knew the restaurants we could go to and couldn't. I mean, I knew all those things, okay. And uh, but 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 the reality of it is, they we learned our history in the Black YMCA. We learned our history through our families. We learned our history through other through other organizations. So we, we, we learned these kind of things and we knew about black freedom fighters and we knew all these things, but we didn't get that type of information at school. My grandmother was the principal of uh, an elementary school in Indianapolis, probably the third largest school at that time, and it was an all-black elementary school. They taught, you know, certain parts of black history and things like that. So I did have the opportunity to go there a couple of summers. So, you know, we got this history, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a mainstream type of thing. It still isn't a mainstream thing. You look you look at schools in this area. Some schools celebrate Black History Month from the educational aspect and teach black history, some don't. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's still some towns that that really don't acknowledge Black History Month that much. We do a good job of that here in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm you know, what I'm saying is there is a lot of room to grow, but we did not so I guess what I'm trying to say is the general population does not necessarily Uh, you know, in terms of celebrations or a formal setting, really learn about uh, black history as a fundamental part of American history. Mm -hmm. Okay,
1: And so who are some of the people that you think um, a a greater number of of, um, Americans should know about that were instrumental in in black history or either people or events or uh, trends or things that that you think— um, everybody should be aware of.
2: Oh, Bob, that's so... <laughs> the list would go on. And, yeah. and I think that may not be the best approach uh-huh. to uh, thinking about history in terms of individuals. I would think about it in terms of movements of people, mm-hmm. you know, black migration, the Harlem Renaissance, Chicago Renaissance, uh, the different, different, different uh, movements of people because a lot uh, depended upon individuals taking responsibility. For example, there were many women before Rosa Parks who took a stand and didn't give up their seats on the bus. Mm -hmm. But it was just that moment in history that came together to make Rosa Parks, you know, stand out. And Mm so if we learn at Rosa Parks and not the movement Mm -hmm. for black equality in the South, then we do ourselves uh, a damage in terms of always looking to individuals.
3: And then you had to roll the NAACP Legal Fund, which put talented attorneys out there to fight segregation, to fight uh, you know access to accommodations, to, to deal with school desegregation and all those other type of things. They're not only important people nationally, but to, to sort of play off your question. Yeah. I think people when they celebrate black History Month need need to look at the leaders in their own communities mm-hmm. who have done things to uh, not only promote diversity but sort of promote uh, so, sort of promote access for minorities
4: mm-hmm. our,
3: our, our underrepresented groups. I mean we always think about the national figures and the ones we right. bring to bloomington and uh, God bless them but but the reality of it is we have strong people in, in our communities, who, uh, in our neighborhoods, who do things. And I think we need to celebrate some of them. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. And just, can I, yeah, if sure I just can. add, Absolutely. I will give you one person. Okay. <laughs> Even though I said that it's not the best way, but I think you can use this woman to study movements and you can study a lot about and learn a lot about American history, and that is Ida B. Wells. Mm -hmm. Ida B. Wells was a pioneering uh, journalist. She was in Chicago. She owned her own newspaper. She was an anti-lynching advocate, and she was a founder of the NACP. So through her, you could study so much about American Mm -hmm. history (laughs) Uh in that one person. And so I would think about people as being the center of it but the larger movement around those. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we've had uh, time to take a a short break. So uh, we're talking about Black History Month. Um, and we're going to get into a little bit about President Obama and, and his impact on uh, the country here in the second hour. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
5: You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, They're archived on our website, wfiu.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Audrey McCluskey, who's the director of the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center here at the Indiana University campus, and David Hummins, who has a variety of uh, things on his resume. He's co-chair of the IU Bloomington Black Faculty and Staff Council. He's also the chair of the Bloomington Commission on the Status of Black Males, which we haven't talked about yet, mm-hmm. uh, and a variety of other things. Audrey has tons of things on her list, too, um, but I'll just give them the short introductions for now. If you want to join us, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your e- email. You can go to our website to... to contact us, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Well, since I mentioned the Commission on the Status of Black Males, David, um, can you explain a little bit about what that commission is up to?
3: Well, I think I've been a member of the commission of the black male, the commission of the, yeah, the commission. <laughs> <laughs> the status of black males probably for about five years. But prior to that, I think a group of people got together in Bloomington and and decided that there were some significant disparities and uh, impediments unique to black males that were getting in the way of them achieving in our society. And there were some problem areas that they thought they needed to specifically be addressed. So the city of Bloomington actually, by ordinance – uh, uh, basically established the Commission on the status of black males, which is loosely associated with the Indiana State Commission on the social status of black males so there's a state commission there are probably maybe ten or twelve commissions around the state i 'd like to think that ours is one of the more active. And basically, we were supposed to address some some th- these four focus or challenge areas, and that is education, health, criminal justice, and employment and uh, and so we've tried to do that we have a, our commission has a, a has an ongoing collaboration with the Monroe county Sc- Community School Corporation uh, in terms of climate issues we We spent a couple of years back in the past working on uh, uh, working on um, on the the, the uh, student discipline policy, because we mm-hmm. found out through uh, a lot of statistics and studies that were they're put together that there were there were major disparities with black males in terms of uh, uh, suspensions and expulsions mm-hmm. from school and things like that and what we were trying to do was trying to work with a- actually the last three or four superintendents just in the last <laughs> four years uh, to, to to sort of uh, to sort of come up with a policy that was going to be more equitable. Equitable Now, even though we're having uh, uh, the, the superintendent, uh, Dr. Koopman, who we have a great relationship with, uh, he's heavily involved in, in the budgetary process, as you know, budget issues. But when he comes out of that, we are going to uh, establish a uh, kind of a diversity roundtable to deal with general climate issues, but not just for black males, you know, just to try to create a better climate to keep, keep our students, especially our students at risk, uh, more academically engaged and then we deal with health and we deal with the other areas but what mm-hmm. we do is we collaborate with other entities mm-hmm. we're trying to get the community to be stakeholders rather than the commission to be the stakeholders mm-hmm. so we mm-hmm. collaborate where we need to try to define problems and work on them
0: mm-hmm. weren't you looking at sentencing disparities at some point as well
3: there's a criminal justice task force report that was put together before i before i actually came on the commission mm-hmm that dealt with, with with all those kind of things. It was actually a nationally recognized uh, task force report. We're talking now, because that was a while ago, and the principals that put that together, a lot of them are here anymore. So we're talking about going back and trying to address specific parts of that report, not the whole thing. But yeah, that's an ongoing thing. But we want to create an environment for achievement. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. just identifying this problem, this problem, this problem. Right. It's to try to create an environment for achievement and, and hope that these kind of things work themselves out. Yeah. Uh, you know,
1: so, sometimes it's just it's easy enough to identify the problem. It's a lot harder to find a solution to it right. and to make sure and to track whether yes. progress is actually being made. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, um, I it's my perception and, you know, Lord knows I could be way off on this, but that uh, media and you know, not necessarily, I'm not trying to pick on local media, I think this is bigger than that, but they tend to focus on the extremes of the black experience, either the, you know, very, very successful or the very uh, challenged. And they, you know, I feel like we don't hear enough about the black middle class. Is that my own perception or is that something that you perceive as well?
2: I perceive that, that you're right, that, uh, of course, You know, if it bleeds, it leads, that that kind of thing. Uh, And so you get the extremes and somebody like Barack Obama, certainly an extreme on one hand. And then, you know, the other kind of criminal thing that you oftentimes see in terms of identifying black males. So you do have you do have that uh, uh, dichotomy of representation in terms of the black experience. And that's very inadequate. But I think that uh, back to the question of media, That's certainly true in terms of black people, but it's also true in terms of our national dialogue. It's Mm -hmm. about extremes. I mean, think about, you know, what we're talking about in, in the political climate. They're extremes. You know, who's in the middle? Who's, you know, trying to look at both sides and, mm-hmm. and, to, and to have some kind of uh, bi- bicultural kind of dialogue or, or political dialogue? People just are uh, drawn, at least the media seems to be drawn to extremes, while most of, the, most of us actually don't reside in either one. Mm-hmm. 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 How healthy would you say the, the black middle class is? Well, it's challenged like the, uh, the other middle class and, and uh, the white middle class uh, and other groups as well because of you know the foreclosure. I mean all the kinds of economic problems that this nation is facing really face. Uh, quadruple in terms of the black experience because we've not been there long, we've not owned homes as, as long, and so we've, we've, we've been, if we have jobs, we haven't had the seniority in those jobs long, and so uh, it, has, it has been said, it's, a, it's a actually an ongoing saying in the black community when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same thing mm-hmm. that you see happening today.
3: But the other thing, the black middle class or black people at large, or people at large, Everybody, I think, is after the same thing. Everybody's, for the most part now, a majority of people out here are hardworking people that want to take care of their families. They want to better their lot. They want their kids and themselves to have good jobs and a good education. That's not what we talk about. We talk about, as as Artie would say, we may talk about both ends, okay? But we don't talk about those people that do that. Even people in this country who don't have that much in terms of means Oftentimes black people or whoever work very hard to try to advance the cause of their people. They may not have access. But everybody – I think most people are out trying to do the same kinds of things. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think we were talking a little bit before the program too about the, how just the, the nature of the media has changed. I mean all this uh, I think has been true for a long time where media – and I, I speak from a position of being in the media. We do, we do cover extremes and now you have so many more um, – options in the media and you can you can just follow one extreme if you want. I mean you can follow one particular news source that's going to mm-hmm. give you your perspective on one extreme and you don't learn about not only the middle class, but even mm-hmm. the other extreme that much.
2: Mm-hmm. It's kind
1: of all changed yeah. a little bit. And,
2: and this and the technology, you know, the Internet, all it just it just makes that more possible. Mm-hmm. And so uh in in terms of looking at where we go and what direction we take it's a very troubling situation that I find in terms of where we're we going on the political horizon, uh, how are we going to have some sense of common ground. Uh, and I'm not sure that we're going to get there. But I, I do think that if uh, a solution is out there, that people, Barack Obama, for one thing, he's a fast learner. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think he, their policies, his, his, uh, his, uh, just his, Political pragmatism, I think, will lead him in a direction to really have some challenges met that are being faced today. So uh, although I'm not optimistic and I certainly don't put uh, – I don't think that Obama should be held responsible for all the things that are happening in in, in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. as some people want to do. I think that he is uh, a, a good hope right now in terms of uh, changing the the political discourse if it's going to change at all. Mm-hmm.
3: Let me say a little bit about the media in the context that we're talking about extremism here. Um, a lot of our news now is instant news. You know, our the young people coming up today, they want instant gratification when it comes to information and news and progress. Okay, I think the demise of the print media, with the exception of our local newspaper, of course. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, has has sort of fed into this. We have so many, we have iPods, we have so many different ways we can get our information now. And I think the 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 infomedia or the media slash entertainment industry really, really sort of flaunts this whole notion of extremism. And I think I think one of the major manifestations of this is, and it's not a positive thing, is that it tends to go against the whole notion of collaboration and cooperation and this whole notion of bipartisanship that all, though Obama promulgates it. It's a very, this notion of bipartisanship is a very difficult thing to achieve. I think that when we had more of the print media, we could sit down, we could read balanced articles, we could weigh things, and we weren't getting these 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 instant blips all the time. And I think that's really had a, a negative impact on, on 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 this whole notion of, of being able to collaborate or seek a middle ground. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, our phone numbers again eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington. outside of the Bloomington calling area and you can join the discussion by going to our website wfiu.org slash noon edition Uh, in terms of the the election of President Obama I think we probably talked about that last year in this very room but he's had one year in office now Um, what kind of impact do you think that has had on uh, when you think of black history and what, what young people today uh, have to look at in terms of, of our, our sort of common experience in black history, what, what's President Obama mean to that whole issue? Well, his
2: election is a defining moment in American history. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would not segment it just in terms of what's happened with, in terms of black people. Uh, but his election also uh, meant a lot in terms of how can – What does it mean for African-Americans? African-Americans, of course, his most uh, loyal constituents, over 90 percent, and even today, when his approval ratings, according to which poll you you read, the Marist poll, the Gallup poll, is from the high 40s to about 50 percent, African-Americans still support him over 90 percent. What I think, though, uh, African-Americans need to do in terms of Barack Obama is hold him accountable. He is a politician. He is a, a lofty politician, but nevertheless, he responds to pressure. And so any group that has 90 percent loyalty, they should expect something in return. If, if the unions uh, voted for Barack Obama up to 80 or 90 percent, they would say these are the things that we want. Mm-hmm. And he would respond to that. I think African-Americans need to be as, as assertive and not just let him take us for granted. Because being a politician, I mean, he's going to respond to the pressure points. And I think we need to, to pressure him. We need to – he understands it, but he is actually inviting it. Because he needs to have that kind of push in order to say, "I'm responding to these constituents, he just can't go out and do it by by fiat. That's just not how the the process works so I would encourage African Americans to come up with a list of uh of things that we need to 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 have him deal with in terms of policy of course, they're making initiatives in terms of education, a race to the top program uh that the uh the the uh Secretary of Education is is advancing will certainly help minority schools but uh, I think we need to be firmer about the fact that now we we were euphoric about his election and we still very much support him but we also want to uh, to to actually have some of some of his policies reflect the needs and and concerns in our communities mm-hmm. were
0: you surprised that he took on don't ask don't tell as you know that's such a high profile uh, policy prior to, at least in in my
2: observation, any major initiative for the black community? Well, there was pressure, again. <laughs> and I think he responded to that pressure. And also, uh, uh, American attitudes have changed. Uh, there's a recent poll today that uh, most Americans now actually support that. And so he's, again, as being a politician, being a lofty one, nevertheless, he's, he's responding to that, to that pressure. So I think he did that because... Uh, he also feels it's the right thing to do, but feeling the right thing to do without the pressure from the political establishment is not, is not something that politicians... They don't go looking for causes, in other words.
0: They, have to, have, coming to the they way. have to come to them. David,
1: way. hold that thought. We're going to go to the phones. We have two phone callers. And the first one uh, is a new caller, Quigley. Hey, Quigley. Quigley, are you there? Uh-oh. I lost Quigley. Quigley, are you there?
3: Yeah. Hey, Go ahead. Hey, listen, Um, I just wondered if the uh, discussion could
4: involve the fact of a latent racism that seems to permeate some congressional people
3: and how that affects the success of Obama's administration. Okay, we will do that. David? Well, I think racism is clearly there, but I also think power is is there. The The opposition party, for example, is in power. I mean not in power, okay? And I think that, that, that people do not sometimes think if they capitulate too much to the other side that they're going to lose power, they're going to lose some of their constituency and all that. Now, I can't quantify the role of race, but I think race is there. But race is something— that for some reason on a na- in terms of a national debate, we're very uncomfortable with having. We, we have these discussions in small groups and in forums and on radio shows, but we really don't have a national discussion that often in terms of the role of race. We, we'd rather talk about uh, the, the fact that Congress and is, polari- is uh, polarized. We'd rather talk about that people just, just have... Uh, uh, um, ideologies that 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 are on both sides, but 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 racism. It should be an ongoing conversation. That the problem is that we, that we really can't quantify it, and we need to be honest about it. But I also think that one of the things that could help trump this a little bit is that Barack Obama came in office, you know, on on this whole notion of uh, community act, activism and people working in their neighborhoods. Organizes sort of a grassroots mm-hmm. type of ca- campaign with the, uh, with, with, the, with the help of uh, things like the Internet and things like this. But his platform was around the economy. We need more jobs. We need to turn the financial markets around, things like that. Terrorism has always been or anti-terrorism has always been something that we're concerned about. We're waging two major wars and we're trying to figure out uh, an exit strategy, a focus of the wars and how to get out of them, health care. Even though healthcare care has come to a standstill right now and there's all, all kind of games being played and there's uh, a major industry like the insurance industry, uh, all kind of health care systems that are making a lot of money and they really don't want this. I mean they want it, but they want it their own way. Uh, access to education, all these things. The same things that we fought for to put Obama in office are the same things that we need to go out there and support him on now. I think too many people thought that once he got in office, the president— Mm-hmm. Was going to be someone that could wave the magic wand and change everything. So it's the people mm-hmm. that have to do it. Healthcare is at a standstill. Yet the American people, uh, the majority of American people, realize that we need a new, a more viable healthcare system. Mm-hmm. I think that will help get it raised.
1: And is to follow up on Quigley 's question I, and some of the comments that you made, I mean there is a lot of discussion about how we have become so polarized, and you know the Republicans don 't want to do anything that the Democrats want to do and the mm. Democrats are holding mm-hmm. together as a group. Where do you think at this point race falls into that? I mean, do you think that that the people in the Congress in America is colorblind when it comes to who 's in the White House, or do you think race is a part of this polarization? Audrey?
2: The snow outside, or maybe the snow in Washington, D.C., would make you colorblind because <laughs> you can't see anything. But uh, in terms of politics, it's never been uh, colorblindness. It just doesn't, doesn't operate that way. R- Barack Obama actually, to, to my way of thinking and looking at it, was a Rorschach uh, image for America, uh, a moment in time when whomever uh, you were, you could find something to either like in Barack Obama, or he could be really the instrument of your prejudice. And so white liberals may find that it was a great opportunity to vote for a black person. Black people, of course, are lifted by the fact that uh, that Barack Obama had gotten to that point. Uh, uh, white races could say, oh, well, we have to do everything. We can de- defeat this guy. And so whatever, uh, whatever position you were, you could find something in Barack Obama to respond to, whether it was positive or whether it was negative. And, 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 and I think that was a kind of the unreal nature of his ascendancy is that he was a kind of a magical person, mm-hmm. you know, either demonized or either uh, glorified and so now we see that he has to operate in an environment where there's no magic there's about reeling and dealing and and making these uh, these uh these uh alignments and making these kinds of uh, uh compromises you know that's the act of, of politics and now we see that people are disappointed and it just it, to me it's a big question mark what did you expect <laughs> and so, this magical aspect of of his persona, I think, was something that served him in terms of getting elected. But it has come back now to hit him in the face because he's dealing with the the real reality of the real politic uh, of the nation.
1: Well, it's like we talked about with the media; everything's instant in the mm-hmm. media these days, and everybody wanted an instant turnaround with what was happening. And we'd had many, many years of uh, growing deficits and two wars and. Uh, terrorism and a lot of other things, and it's pretty quick to expect a change.
2: And race is always there, but it's not the only thing that's there. Mm-hmm. And so if you reduce it to a simply race, I think that's too simplistic. But race is always, in my, in my experience, part of the equation. Mm-hmm. So some people out there in the Tea Party, uh, they are probably racist. Other people who are, you know, uh, libertarians. But still, they're only 18 percent of the population. Mm-hmm. And yet, they get eighty percent of the attention in terms of the media. Mm-hmm. And so, back to your your question about the media's role, I mm-hmm. think the media actually heights a situation that uh, probably would just be a footnote. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, we have another phone call, and it's Rob. Rob,
4: hello there. Nice to talk with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, as someone that grew, can you hear me? Yes. As someone that grew up in a heavily segregated area of Michigan, uh, who had no exposure with uh black people or or minorities of any sort the the uh, the examples of from the black uh community that impressed me were uh in the objects of art that impressed me were were Lorraine Hansberry's uh productions of uh, A Raisin in the Sun starring uh, uh made into a film by Patier, Sidney Potier and um uh abby Davis I believe or uh, uh, the husband of of uh, Mr. Davis, uh, and uh, the uh, the artistry, the piano artistry of Oscar Peterson in his uh, fabulous recordings uh, that are, I believe, still available. Those those were the artists; those were the persons that impressed me and made me realize that you know the big, the bigotry that I saw in my daily life and even in my church uh, were uh, you know were faults and were were uh, very unfair to black folks so i i encourage you to uh to uh exhibit those films and the in examples of par, uh, Oscar Peterson artistry during the course of this black month to encourage people to see the uh you know the beauty and the uh, artistry and the power of of these works of art Jay uh, i don't i don't i find i speak with very few i'm not a a member of the uh campus community i'm uh, uh and uh although i have taken courses at iu i i don't meet many students at all but uh, the students the few students that i meet uh don't seem to have any uh idea of jazz art uh, don't not idea but they don't have any appreciation for jazz uh they they don't know the the great names of jazz Ella Fitzgerald. i mean Elle, can you believe people don't young 18 year old people that i've met in mcdonald's don't recognize the name el Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Oscar Peterson, uh, D- uh, Duke Ellington—these people are, you know, just off their off the radar. And I'd like—I'd—I'd uh, I'd also just like to mention that uh, I agree completely with uh, uh, David's uh, comment about the media and the uh, the flickering uh, bits of, of information that we get interspersed with uh, long commercials. And I'd like to recommend. Amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman, uh, a book uh, written by a scholar uh, over twenty years ago that 's more true today than it was back then it 's about our culture and the effect of amusement uh, uh, entertain uh, the television industry on politics, education, and journalism uh, so i'll i 'd like to hear your comments about that and, and uh, I recommend this book to you highly
1: okay, thanks a lot for the call Rob. Audrey, you want to respond to that? You're uh, very knowledgeable about about film.
4: Yes, but
2: <laughs> I I think that Black History Month, a Black History, should not be confined to Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And the best way to answer his uh, the caller's uh, very lucid comment about the power of of the Black arts and and Black music is to mainstream them and to not. Uh, put the burden of representing all of black history in 28 days. And so until we do that, until we use Black History Month as a way to highlight something that we want to continue throughout— we used to think about a black millennium rather than a black month <laughs> because black people are the oldest people on this, on this earth in terms of the origin of, of black people in Africa. So why should it be confined to a month? This is a month of highlights, but it's certainly not the final word on black history, and it shouldn't be. So I would, I would encourage us to deal with Lorraine Hansberry, John Coltrane, uh, Miles Davis, uh, all of these people throughout the year and just use Black History Month as a highlight Period,
1: mm-hmm. David. Any response to what uh,
2: what Rob had to say? Yeah, to
3: talk about what he said and to and to piggyback off of what what Audrey said. I think the celebration of Black History and the celebration of Black History Month. Uh, should be done in such a way as a carryover, the arts, so that there are mainstream, so that we do know about them year-round. But but in terms of other areas, like whether it's the economy or education and those type of things, I think one of the things Audrey was saying earlier about this whole notion of the celebration of Black History Month or, or the whole year is, how can this celebration manifest itself in terms of more jobs for people who need jobs, specifically black people? How can it energize people in terms of really pushing for better access to education. How can we get better healthcare? How can, you know, how can how can Black History Month help black people and other people uh address some of the real problems they have in everyday life? The other thing is and the great thing I think that black history Month does it 's not only just a celebration of arts but it 's also supposed to be a celebration of the accomplishments <laughs> of black people throughout the years not you know it not you know in American history. My father was one person who constantly told me, although i didn 't realize it at the time. He inculcated me with the notion of the accomplishments, amazing accomplishments, accomplishments of black people as we were growing up, whether they were local people in Indianapolis, whether they were people nationally, whether they were people internationally. We always talked about people that were accomplishments, but right in our own neighborhood, too. The guy down the street who got a Ph.D. from biochemistry from IU, Mm -hmm. such and such, such and such. He always – the thing that drove drove my family – and I'm just talking about my family for this moment, but many families is – it's to see other minorities and other represented people doing well, and we push those kind of things. Okay. And that's the kind of thing that we need to do in black history.
1: All right. Well said, and we are out of time. <laughs> I want to thank, thank David Hummons and Audrey McCluskey for being here with us today. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, Ariana Prothero, and Mike Paschkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.